Hello and welcome to Better Words. My name is Caitlin and I'm just a bookish babe. And I'm Michelle and I'm from the Unfinished Bookshelf. We're so excited. We're actually not that excited. I don't know why I just said that. Like we're excited about this episode and recording and everything. But right now, one of Michelle's neighbours is mowing like so loudly. They're not mowing. They're using, a chain, they're using a chainsaw or something. I don't know what it sounds like. Okay? It's a chainsaw. It's a chainsaw? Yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't see it. I don't know what it sounds like. I'm not good at identifying sounds I'm pretty like that. sure that's a chainsaw. Why the hell? <sighs> I don't know. Well, either way, cutting something. Either way, they're doing something that's Maybe very, very a dead body. <laughs> Only you would think that. I've been listening to my favorite matter this morning. Either way, they're what doing something. What are you something... excited for? Well, I'm excited to record. Oh, but okay. like, they're being very, very noisy. So instead of recording in Michelle's study, where like I don't know, it must be it doesn't even have to be a close neighbor, but we can hear it. So now we're in Michelle's bedroom instead. With like two other doors closed and we're set up on the floor. It's yeah. ridiculous. I'm crouching so much right now, but that's okay. <laughs> anyway, what have you been up to? Well, I actually did want to talk about something. I've mentioned the past couple of episodes or you would have seen in our newsletter. If you haven't subscribed, you can at betterwordspodcast.com. Um, just throw that in there. Um, so I've mentioned past couple of episodes or have put it as like what we've been watching lately um in our newsletter that I've been re-watching Gossip Girl um I think I even mentioned it last week and we talked a little bit about the teacher-student relationship yes we did yes. because yeah that's a bit troubling but um I literally I, don't remember what we talked about week to week on this so much happens in between I know but when the, when I start to say it it all comes back to me you mm. know yeah. um but I did just want to mention um in you know, a lot of things that have been happening. Um, many different people have, you know, different things about their past have been discovered or people are finally speaking up and they feel like they can, you know, speak up about what has been happening to them um, in their lives. And I just wanted to point out that I've been feeling very conflicted about watching Gossip Girl lately, um, considering things that have happened with um ed westwick um who plays the character of chuck bass um i guess i just want to say that i do not support him at all i'm very disappointed that it is now affecting my opinion of this tv show that i love um which unfortunately can happen with a lot of these things you know we've discussed that before on this podcast and don't really want to get into it too much but i just wanted to make it clear that while i I'm still watching Gossip Girl. I do not, I don't know, I don't like that it's affecting my opinion of the TV show. These are the things that are happening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> Michelle and I both feel the same way. With all of the, with everything, we, Gossip Girl is one show that, along with many others, that we do both love. And um, you watched it long before I did. I only watched it for yeah. the first time, like I can't, last I still year or the year before. I can't believe that you only just watched it last year. Like That's last amazing. year or the year before, maybe end of the year before. I'm not sure, but yeah. I anyway. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, what have you been watching lately? <sighs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Um, can I tell a story about? Okay, so yesterday yesterday from when this is being aired so tuesday was my mine and jack's anniversary and last week we went i thought it would be a cute idea for us to get a book for each other because you know books are so personal and it's really hard to pick a book for someone like genuinely that you think they're gonna love um so i was like and also i want a new book so uh, I was like, let's pick books for each other. And then we decided that we would go have dinner and go get the books like together because basically we just both have been really busy and hadn't had a chance to go by ourselves. Um, so both of us had done research uh, for the books that we wanted to get the other person and they weren't there. Um, Classic Rocky bookshops. Yeah, so both of us were like, damn. So we kind of turned to each other and were like, okay, so we're going to have to like research in the shop and find something in the shop. And we were really nervous that we would like give the other person something that they didn't like because we both 
are super anxious about that sort of thing. Um, so we picked like four books that the other person could pick what they wanted. Um, and Jacket picked me three, which sounded really interesting. But then we were looking a bit more and there was this one and I turned around and as I went to say, I really want to read this, he said, I was going to get you this one. This was my first choice. So we kind of like in a rush. The reason he hadn't is because the cover has like a bust of like like a ancient Greek like yeah, like statue, a statue thing. Yeah. And he was confusing it with the cover for Girls Will Be Girls. Which, oh, so yeah. he thought that you so already he, had it. And on top of that, he remembered it because we were at the library together once and I pointed it out and was like, I really want to read that. And so he was like, oh, I'm sure she already has it. And I was like, no, no, I don't. And he was like, oh, so, okay, that's your book then. Um, <laughs> so the book was so perfect for me. It's ridiculous. It was a hundred nasty women of history and it's basically just badass women you should know about. <laughs> Where do I get all my nonfiction recommendations? Cat 10 looks three. No, I get all my nonfiction recommendations from my other favorite podcast, Control Alt Delete. Oh, right. Yeah. I was like, I was as like, soon as I said that now, you're like, yeah. Um, always so one or the other. I listen to the author, Hannah Jewell, I think, off the top of my head, because I haven't actually done any research for this. Let me. <laughs> what is research? Mm, Can you remind what? me what that is again? What is that? <laughs> 100. No, Hannah Jewell. Oh, Hannah Jewell. Okay. Yeah, I heard her on Control Alt Story. Okay. I heard her on Control Alt Delete and was like, oh, I have to read this book. It's amazing. Sounds amazing. So some of the women in it are like women who punched Nazis awesome. or women with impressive kill counts. So it's not just your average like these like are, impressive women yeah, in history. It's like yeah. these are badass babes yeah like the you ones that you have know about them yeah. exactly so i'm really looking forward to that and if anyone is interested i got jack the underground railroad by colson whitehead which um is like a set with like a slavery um set in the background of slavery in southern america um he loved the revenant so i was looking for the similar sorts of books um as well but yeah so they kind of match too they're same colors very very adorable okay so yeah that's my life okay (laughs) so the story that i want to tell right now is um the other thing that i've been doing lately is i've been binge listening to anna faris's unqualified because um most of the episodes are quite long which i love because they're very conversational and chatty but they can get long like there's the record is probably like two and a half hours or something um, so I do miss some sometimes and like they'll, you know, move down my podcast feed and I'll listen to like the most recent and I've had a few that I guess I just missed because um, I also end up, not missed, I just like haven't listened to yet and then because I also end up binge listening to other podcasts mm. um, and everything. So I've gone back and I've been listening to a few of episodes of Unqualified that I had missed and one I listened to was with Colin Hanks um, who was with starred with her in The House Bunny so that was very very funny oh, that's so funny um, but part of when they were discussing something I forget what it was actually about and um, Colin Hanks was just like isn't this is the part of the podcast where someone googles something he's like someone google it there's always a part of a podcast where someone <laughs> googles something and I was just like laughing so much because we always google things and we usually cut it out because there's about a minute of silence while we're like, like scrolling through our phones find it. oh my goodness trying to find a note or something that we've googled <laughs> oh it's so, so ridiculous yeah. anyway yeah my life's about to get very I mean, it's exciting, but boring in terms of what I can share on this podcast because uni's also started back up. So I'm not going to be watching or listening to anything really outside this podcast. Maybe that will like make me at least watch like one movie or something a week just so I can have something to talk about. Just relax about. Yeah. And I think it's good to do that. I love just like sitting down and watching a movie. Like it's really relaxing. Every week is going to be like, I did some more uni. Um, yeah. Don't like I'm really excited for uni, but yeah. Well, I know one book we still have to read in March. Ah, yes. What could that be? Join us for our first Better Words book club with with 
Sorry. With Ellie Marnie. That's what she's trying to say. So we're (laughs) reading White Night by Ellie Marnie for our first Better Words book club um, in March, and it is currently March. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be so exciting. We're both so excited to read it. Michelle is just looking so annoyed at all the cars going yeah, past. Yeah, I apologize. You live on the street. Like, you don't live in the middle of nowhere. Like no, but, expect. well, because we usually record in my study, which is on the other side of the house, we don't have to contend with the street noise. But then there's But the we had to get away noise. from the chainsaw man. So it's just, today has not been our day. <laughs> no, not we really. We started well with it. We, we've been pre-recording some stuff this morning. Started great. And I've left the notifications on on my phone. Oh, look, it's time for us to go and just let you listen to this awesome interview that we have coming up to share. Our guest today is a writer, picture book author, a cancer survivor, amputee, queer, feminist, and a teacher. As well as picture books, she writes about disability, LGBTI issues, and the intersections between her disabled and queer experiences. She is a sensitivity reader for manuscripts featuring amputee and queer characters and reviews published books with amputee characters. Welcome to Better Words, Jessica Walton. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> um, no, it's a pleasure. <laughs> um, so there's an interesting story behind how your picture book, Introducing Teddy, came to be um, with crowdfunding and then traditional publishing. Can you tell us a bit about that journey and um, what inspired you to write the book? Um, so uh, my dad came out as trans about maybe five or six years ago and at the time my partner and I um, were thinking about starting a family and so we thought we would look for picture books that represent the diversity in our family unit. So we were looking for um, picture books with two mums and picture books with disabled characters because I'm someone with a disability. Obviously, I wanted to see that in picture books as well. Um, And it was quite difficult to find um, diverse picture books and it took us a long time to kind of build up a collection. And when Dad came out as trans, um, we thought, okay, well, we've got to find some picture books with trans characters. Um, And it was just so difficult to find anything, particularly um, for young children. Um, And we really wanted to be able to read those picture books right from the beginning. There were a few that that dealt with, um, I guess, bullying and transphobia. And um, and we thought, no, we we just want a picture book, a simple story about a trans character um, who is accepted by everyone around them, which is the way it should be and the way that kids are with each other. Um, So, yeah, that's what we we started looking for. And the reason I wrote Introducing Teddy was that I couldn't find anything. Um, And now there are other picture books out there which I'm always excited about. So there's, you know, um, My Dad Thinks I'm a Boy by Sophie LaBelle, who is a trans author. There's a picture book called Who Are You? The Kids Guide to Gender Identity. Um, And uh, there's a picture book called Are You a Boy or a Girl? by Fox Fisher. And I've just forgotten the name of the other author. Um, I'm waiting on that one to arrive. Mm -hmm. So I'm always like, as soon as I hear about a new picture book with a trans character, I order it straight away. Um, There's Gender Fairy by Joe Hurst. So now there's a whole range of picture books to choose from. Um, But at the time when I wrote Introducing Teddy, there really wasn't much out there. And so, yeah, that's why I wrote it. I didn't even think about going to a mainstream publisher because I just didn't think they would be interested in the book. Um, Mm. So I just put it up on Kickstarter because I'd seen... Um, one of the picture books that we bought that had two mums um, had been up on Kickstarter and had done really well and we had bought that book. And so I basically looked at what they had done with their Kickstarter campaign and looked at, you know, how much they paid their illustrator and what kind of information they put up on the Kickstarter page and I looked at, you know, the video and I basically just went, okay, this is how you do a successful Kickstarter campaign for a picture book and then set one up for introducing Teddy. And I knew I couldn't illustrate it myself, Um, so I uh, just said on Facebook, does anyone know an illustrator, which is apparently not a traditional way to go about finding an illustrator. So (laughs) I was really lucky that my brother suggested um, Dougal McPherson, um, who he knew through kind of the tech community, and Dougal had done these live illustrations at tech conferences um, that my brother really loved, and he had an Instagram where he drew pictures of his kids having adventures, and... As soon as I saw the Instagram account, I was like, yes, I really, really want this guy to work with me on introducing Teddy. And thankfully, he said yes. So that's kind of where we started. And the Kickstarter um, took off. We, we weren't anticipating 
um, the success that we had with it. And that, it was partly helped along by Neil Gaiman tweeting about it, which was a lovely surprise. That's amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we started getting calls from international media and I started doing like interviews at, you know, two or three in the morning to, you know, suit the time zones of the journalists overseas. And, you know, we were talking to the BBC and the Guardian and, it was a bit of a, a whirlwind um, and definitely not what I was anticipating. Um, mm. But it turns out that there were people all over the world who were looking for these kinds of picture books. So then we, through the Kickstarter, we um, once we were successfully funded, we sent out our Kickstarter version of the picture book. But we were also contacted by an agent in New York and we signed up with them. Um, and we were also contacted by publishers and we were able then to refer those publishers to our new agent. <laughs> and that's how um, uh, we ended up publishing with Bloomsbury, was through that agent. So we were very lucky um, to kind of find our way unexpectedly into traditional publishing with introducing Teddy, but it definitely wasn't something that I was anticipating or preparing for at the beginning of the process. In fact, uh, my partner and I were talking about, you know, getting a credit card so we could an extra credit card to pay the illustrator if the Kickstarter campaign didn't work out. And I was mm-hmm. fully anticipating that it wouldn't be successful and I would have to somehow fund the publication of this book just so we could have it on our shelf at least. Because mm-hmm. that was the initial purpose, was writing it for my own family. Um, yeah. So it's very unexpectedly turned into becoming a picture book author. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's wonderful though. It's wonderful and it's wonderful that you kind of tapped into something that obviously so many other people were looking for. Yeah. I think what I didn't anticipate was how many families um, were after picture books with um, trans characters who didn't know anyone who was trans necessarily and I think that was – it was such a pleasure to realise that we're at a stage now where people are genuinely looking for diversity in their picture books. And mm. I think it's something that publishers are starting to realise too, is that the, the market for um, books with diverse characters are not just the communities that, that are being represented. It's parents who are thinking, you know, well, why isn't the world reflected in the picture books that I'm reading my kids? You know, what kind of message is that sending to my kids if I'm, you know, reading the books with the same family over and over again? Uh, what kind of messages are the gaps and silences in picture books sending my kids? And so they're consciously going out and looking for diverse picture books. So uh, that's that's been a lovely, lovely thing to realise. Mm. And I think that will just get better and better. And publishers will hopefully... Um, you know, cotton on to that even more and, and we'll, we'll see more picture books published with diverse characters. And so have you heard from families, though, like yours that were specifically looking for something and, and couldn't find it, as well as those who, who just wanted to have a more diverse education, I guess, for their kids? Yes, so we've actually been contacted by people who have used this picture book to come out as trans to their kids, which has been um, just amazing. (laughs) The first time someone contacted me with a story like that, I was so emotional because, um, yeah, I I never anticipated when I wrote this book for my family that it would have such an impact on someone else's family. So that's, um, I feel very grateful to be a part of someone else's story like that. so I think the, the good thing is that with more and more picture books coming out with trans characters, particularly books written by trans authors, um, you know, those families will have more and more options in terms of picture books to read to their kids. And I think, you know, there will be other people who can't find exactly what they're after who will write that book. And that's one of the great things about things like Kickstarter is that people are able to kind of get there and other crowdfunding um, options is that people can get something out there um, that, that the community needs, that they need. Um, and then publishing hopefully picks up on that trend. And with um, introducing Teddy, I think they were able to see that there was a market for it, that we'd already proven that there were there was media interest, there was interest from you know, people wanting to buy the book, and so that makes it less, you know, um, it gives them some proof, I guess, that, that there is that desire for diverse representation in the community. And hopefully we won't need that eventually. Publishers will just know that that's what people want and they'll, they'll look for that. And, yeah, I think there has been a big push um, recently for more diverse representation generally across the board with books. And I, I think there's very levels of success, but um, on the whole, we're kind of moving towards more diverse representation. Mm. Yeah. Um, so as well as introducing Teddy, you also, like as we mentioned before, write about disability and LGBTI issues and how they intersect. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about that? Like are you writing mainly aimed at like a young adult or a middle grade or a child audience or are you looking at 
every um, age group? Uh, well, I have been working on a, a YA story, but I feel like um, with young kids, that's probably not, you know, it's probably going to take me a long time to finish that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how anyone writes YA novels with young kids, but I just find <laughs> um, sitting down and writing, you know, um, hundreds of words in a session or thousands of words in a session is just impossible for me. But I'm really slowly plugging away at that story. Um, and the one that I'm writing is about bullying, and that's based on experiences that I had as a kid mm. um, but the picture books I'm interested in writing at the moment are um, picture books with uh, disabled characters so and picture books that kind of teach kids about the disabled community and disability pride um, and yeah I think that's there's a real gap in in picture books in that sense at the moment um, mm. and uh, you know, I look at my, my shelf and we've got a picture book called The Wonky Donkey by Craig Smith and illustrated by Cat Kelly and it is one of my favourite picture books. <laughs> and The Wonky Donkey, <laughs> it's a really funny book and it's actually anti-tea rep for me because this kind of farting, hilarious donkey um, also happens to have... Um, their left leg amputated just like me so they have a prosthetic leg mm. and every time we get to the page where it shows the prosthetic leg my three-year-old is like just like mommy Aww. and so it, absolutely I can see the importance even of having mm. a, you know a farting donkey with a prosthetic leg where you know my son can see that there is an amputee in a picture book and it's you know it's just mentioned briefly in a funny picture book about a donkey but it's still you know, he still has that moment of recognition and can make that connection between a character on the page and his family member who has a prosthetic leg. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd like to see more um, amputees in picture books and all kinds of disabilities represented. Um, and I have been slowly building up a collection of picture books with disabled rep. Um, there's a, a couple of great ones um, that have uh, disability, have disabled characters um, in them without it kind of, without it being mentioned or, or being a big part of the story. Mm. So, and I quite like those books as well. So we've got A Family is a Family is a Family by Sarah O'Leary, illustrated by Kim Lang. And, um, and that has uh, a whole range of different families, including queer parents and foster parents. Um, and that's a really nice way, a book like this is a great way of getting a whole range of diverse families into a classroom or into your child's um, picture book collection. It's a nice quick way of making sure you've got some diverse rep there. Um, and one of the families in this book has a mum who is a wheelchair user. Mm. Um, and there's another one, sorry, I'm just, <laughs> there's another fantastic one which I think is one of the best examples of disability rep in picture books um, called Teddy Took the Train. Uh, and the mum in that picture book is a wheelchair user and there's also a, um, in a crowd scene, there's a teddy bear who is a wheelchair user as well. Um, and that's kind of my... Um, uh, my favourite example of disability rep in picture books at the moment. So that's what I'm interested in doing is writing picture books with disability rep. I'd love to work with some disabled illustrators because obviously you, know, you need to be careful that the illustrations are accurate and, hmm. and appropriate as well. Um, and there's just not enough disabled authors and illustrators in the picture book space at the moment or in you know middle grade and YA, but <laughs> I am focusing on, on picture books at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And... Um how what what steps really can be taken to to make those changes and and make what you're hoping to like to actually see that happening and to see more books with that representation uh so because the thing is, is making sure that there are disabled people working in publishing i think that really helps um you know when you have a disabled editor who is working on a manuscript with disability rep you know they are going to know what to look for in terms of you know, ableism or stereotypes or, you know, inappropriate language around disability. Um, and they'll be aware of the issues that the disabled community are interested in seeing represented and the kinds of characters they'd like to see represented. Um, and, and also making sure that um, publishers are using sensitivity readers. I know there's a lot, been a lot of debate and discussion around sensitivity readers, um, but basically if we want authors to be writing more diversely, you know, we need them to do the research so that they get the characters right. And one way that they can do that research um, is, you know, looking into it themselves, but then also using um, sensitivity readers to make sure that they're not including things like ableist language or mm. um, harmful stereotypes in their books. So, yeah, having so disabled people the in the moment. industry, having disabled sensitivity readers, 
um, and publishers looking for own voices for feature books and, and middle grade and YA books as well. Um, there's definitely a real problem with um, with a lack of disabled voices um, being published at the moment by mainstream publishers. Yeah. So they're three things that, that need to happen. Yeah. And so you do sensitivity reading at the moment. What what are you looking for when you sit down and look at someone's manuscript? So the first thing I do is just a general read-through um, and I might make some notes in the, the margins of a manuscript, um, just my initial reactions to things. Um, and that's really good, I think, because, you know, um, the first reaction that you have before you finish the story, that's how your reader, once the book is published, is going to be, you know, approaching the story. And if there's something harmful kind of, you know, a quarter of the way through the book, um, then that might mean that someone who's harmed by, by you know, a stereotype or some harmful language might put that book down and stop reading it. So, you know, I like to get my initial thoughts on it as I'm reading. Um, and then once I've finished reading through, I'll do another read um, to, to make sure I haven't missed any issues. And then I'll go through and do a report with some general feedback about the story and how it represents disability and also any specific examples of things that I think might be problematic. Um, and I usually ask if they'd also like me to look out for, you know, clear rep, if they've got any clear rep in their book, um, or uh, also fat rep. So, um, you know, I can kind of read for a few different things because they're the, the things that I'm looking for in terms of representation for myself as a reader. Um, yeah, and so I can include all of those things in the report. But obviously my my reactions might be different to another dis- disabled person's reactions. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, using a sensitivity reader isn't a 100% guarantee that you're going to um, publish a book which is completely, you know, appropriate and, and has, you know, completely good rep. So it's not, a, you know, it's not the only thing you need to do, but it is a really good way of just picking up on on some of the things in your manuscript that might be harmful. Mm. And starting to understand why they're harmful, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I do provide explanation and, you know, it it can be hard when, you know, you do find something that you feel is problematic. It can be really hard to to say that to an author. So giving feedback, as an author myself, I always think, how would I like to get this feedback from a sensitivity reader myself? Um, and that can be helpful in terms of, you know, finding the best way to, to give that feedback. But I do think that for authors who are writing their first books, it can be quite a difficult thing financially to, to find money for sensitivity readers. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so that's something for authors to think about, I guess, when they're, you know, writing um, books with diverse directives is to prepare for that stage of the, the writing process where they may need to pay someone to, to do a sensitivity reading. And finding a sensitivity reader can be difficult. So there are some databases that have been set up now to help people find sensitivity readers. But really what I'd like to see is more publishers engaging sensitivity readers. And that's something we're starting to see in the industry. Um, And I do work with publishers as well as authors. Um, But, yeah, I'd like to see publishers kind of taking that on as just a normal part of the process of working through a manuscript with an author. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really good, I think, if that could be something that was just you know, I guess, you know, part of the norm because it should be the norm. Yes, yeah. And, yeah. and obviously once publishers have worked with, you know, um, disabled sensitivity readers with various disabilities and they've, built, they've, you know, connected with them and have a relationship with them, so then it becomes easier for, you know, people to find a sensitivity reader because publishers will have, you know, a database of people that they work with. So, you know, having sensitivity readers... Um, work with publishers is really good but ultimately it would be good to see publishers also focusing on making sure that their staff are diverse um, so that you know and also that their staff are across things like ableist language so Mm. if you're working as an editor in a you know in a a publishing house it's you know I think it's now really important and I think a lot of publishers are already kind of you know across this but there are some who maybe could do with a little bit of extra training um, on you know, LGBTI issues and um, things like ableism just so that they can pick up on some of those issues themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, with, you know, you have a background as a teacher as well as your experiences, you know, being a parent and a writer, um, how much of a difference do you think it makes when children are able to access more diverse literature from such a young age? Well, I think you know, when we think back to the picture books that we loved as a child, you know, we tend to buy those ones for our own kids first because we want to share 
our love of the classics. So, you know, one of the first ones that I went out and got was um, Where the Wild Things Are because I loved it yeah. so much as a kid. <laughs> yeah. um, but when I looked at, you know, I'd, I'd got all the classics. I had some original picture books that I had as a child and a few that I'd bought at the, you know, at the bookshop that looked fantastic. And, you know, I, I thought I was doing pretty well with my collection building and then, you know, you, you do a little look at, at what the families are like in the picture books you're reading and you realise, okay, well, most of these families, if not all, are white and nearly all of the characters are, you know, straight and cisgender and able-bodied. Mm. And I think, you know, when kids look around at the world around them, that's obviously not how the world is. And so, you know, they might not consciously notice at first that, you know, the picture books they're reading don't reflect the diversity of the world. But I think if you're wanting kids to, you know, to be um, aware of that diversity and to accept it as normal, then, you know, you have to make sure that the, the books you're giving them reflect that diversity. And we know how important it is for kids to see themselves represented. I think that's becoming, you know, something that most people are aware of is that we like to see ourselves represented in picture books. And I know how important that is because the first time I read a picture book with an entity, even though it was a donkey, it was emotional for me. And, mm. you know, the first time I read um, a, a YA book with a queer character, I cried all the way through it because it was just so amazing to see positive representation in a YA book and I thought I wish I'd had this as a teenager this would have meant so much to me mm. um, and I think that's why I like reading queer YA now because it's like I'm, I'm giving that to myself to the you know my inner child who really needed those books when I was younger um, but you know as well as seeing ourselves represented we do really need to make sure the kids see the diversity around them reflected as well and that will I think help kids to be more aware and more compassionate and more um, respectful and understanding of those around them um, and and as well as thinking about what it will do to have those characters on the page, we need to think about what it will do to not have those characters on the page. So when you think about the fact that there is this massive taboo about putting trans characters in picture books, you know, that taboo comes from somewhere. There's a silence around it. There's a, mm. you know, a, a censoring of trans characters being, you know, people um, will say things about it being inappropriate for a young child. It's like, well, if it's not inappropriate for a child to be trans, if it's not inappropriate for a parent or a teacher to be trans, then it shouldn't be inappropriate for a picture book to have trans rep. So we need to make sure that we're not sending kids messages about, you know, um, about anyone in our community not being appropriate, not being acceptable to put in a picture book. That's a very harmful message to send. For some people, that's a deliberate thing. They want that message to be sent. That's the whole point. They want kids to think that being trans is inappropriate mm. um, or that it's wrong. But if we believe that it's not wrong, then we need to be very careful about having those gaps and silences in picture books. So, Definitely for teachers, you know, and people working in childcare centres and kindergartens, having picture books with diverse work is very important. And having books like Just the Way We Are by Jessica Shervington or the one that I mentioned earlier, A Family is a Family is a Family, where you've got a whole range of different families represented, that's really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, I agree. Even thinking about, I'm sure you had this as well, like thinking about the books that my parents read me, the first mm. one I thought of, um, when you said something about, you know, how important it is for children to see themselves, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, um, the first book I thought of was actually one that my mum used to read my younger brother and it was just because the main character had the same name as him. Oh. Yeah. And my brother loved, loved that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, even something as little as that. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, seeing yourself in anything is important. It's about the representation and... Yeah, you know, we need and we to... do we do tend to try and identify with the characters in the books that we're reading. Yeah. You know, we put ourselves in the place of the main character often. And if you're, um, you know, if people like you are always either completely absent from the books or are always, you know, the sidekick or the, you know, the minor character, mm. um, you know, that says something absolutely. And we know that it, it does, says something yeah. because when people do finally see themselves represented, it's a really um, amazing feeling and sometimes if it's been a long time it's a, a very sad and, and overwhelming experience so you know I think all you have to do is look at an adult reading um, a book that has someone like them for the first time in it to know how important it is for kids to see themselves for them not to go through their entire lives 
not seeing That's anyone right. like them in, in the, the books they read. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I had some family drama this week and the first thing I did was like put a post on the chat 10 looks three Facebook page and be like, can anyone like recommend books dealing with these sorts of family issues? Because I just, how I've always comforted myself growing up has been to look for books that have similar situations. And I just, I couldn't imagine growing up and, and not having that or just having that absence. So I think it's brilliant that people are more aware now and are starting to make a change, especially for younger readers. Mm. Um, Like you said, like reading stuff now that you're just like, I wish I'd had this. Yes. Yeah. And I think one of the nice things too is that we're moving. So you were saying that you were looking for picture books that dealt with the specific issues and that's um, a very healthy thing for people to do. You know, for example, you know, when we had um, a death in our family, we looked for picture books that that dealt with death and that Mm. talked about that in a way that was, comforting and appropriate to young kids Um, and that's normal for parents to go and do that and certainly you know when a family member becomes disabled or comes out as gay or trans people may look for picture books that are relevant to that situation Um, but I think what's nice is that we are starting to move away from issue books that deal with you know like introducing Teddy in some ways is an issue book it's dealing it was me dealing with a particular situation and saying I need diverse representation I need something that I can read to my kids and use it to start a conversation about how proud I am of their grandma and how wonderful she is and how important it is for everyone to be themselves. Um, And in that sense, it's an issue book. Um, But something like Teddy Took the Train, um, you know, where the mum just happens to be a wheelchair user, it's not mentioned in the text, it's just part of the story. Um, Those are really nice examples of representation too because just to even exist as a character and for your sexuality or gender identity or disability to be you know, um, to not be the focus, but to just be something that happens, you know, just like in real life, you know. Yeah, um, it's just the character, it's not the story. So, yeah. yeah, and like you said, not to just be the sidekick or like mm. a token yeah. character, like yeah. to actually just yeah. be a main part of it. But this also happens to be part of their life too. Yeah, I think yeah. that's really important. Yeah. yeah, and obviously you want picture books that, you know, help you, for example, as a queer kid, I would have loved picture books with, uh, sorry, um, would have loved, you know, maybe some middle grade and YA books with mm. that um, that dealt with the, the feelings before and after you just come out to everyone. So there are some great YA middle grade books around that now, but, um, you know, then you also, after you've kind of come out and you're, you know, happy with who you are, you want those books where you just happen to be the main character and you happen to have a, you know, to fall in love with, with someone and it's just like a normal way book like anyone else's book. So it's important to have a mix um, yeah. of both kinds of books. And yeah. that, that's just about publishing, opening it up to all kinds of narratives around diversity, around diverse characters. Yeah. Um, let's talk about ableist language now because you mentioned that as part of what you look for in sensitivity reading as well. Yes. Um, and we spoke to Carly Findlay about this as well when we talked to her um, and interviewed her um, and, you know, we were saying that I think most people, most people that we know understand that there are racist and homophobic terms, but it feels like there's still a way to go with ableist language. Um, So can you kind of talk to us a bit more about that and um, I guess also how you talk to authors if they've got ableist language in their book, how do you kind of explain to them you know, this is not really appropriate. Yeah. So, for example, um, so I'll just say for any um, disabled listeners who are tuning in that I am about to discuss um, a an ableist word, a slur. Um, so if you might find that distressing, then perhaps if you just want to tune out for um, for a couple of minutes um, while we talk about it, and I think it's important to give that warning because they can be distressing to some people. Mm. Um, that's the whole point. <laughs> so... Um, so now that people have had a chance to do that if they need to, um, I'll just briefly bring up one word that I um, that I challenge people on a lot, um, and it's the word moron. So the reason that I um, started making a fuss about this word is that um, I learned about the history of the word um, and the fact that it's, a- that it's ableist, and I noticed how often it was being used in the classrooms that I teach in. Um, mm. So it's a really commonly used word to put someone down. Um, the other context that it's come up in a lot is conversations on social media around politics, particularly Trump. Um, so, the you know, this word has 
um, a history as a diagnostic word. Um, so, you know, it's originally from the Greek word for foolish or dull, and um, it was appropriated as a diagnostic term by the American Association for the Study of the Feeble-Minded, and it was used to refer to adults with um, a so-called mental age between 8 and 12 and an IQ of 51 to 70. Not be looking into a discussion about how flawed the IQ test is, um, <laughs> but basically it was used diagnostically, um, like word, along with um, the word idiot and imbecile. So idiot was used to refer to a mental age below six and imbecile for a mental age between six and nine. So this word has a history as a diagnostic word used to classify um, people with intellectual disabilities. Mm. So, and then by around the 20s, um, it started being used as an insult and it was dropped from diagnostic use. So it has it has this history that people are not aware of. Yeah, I had no idea and about that. I think we, you know, we're very used to understanding that, for example, the word gay used to be used um, by a lot of teenagers um, as a kind of slang word to mean something bad. And I remember that when I was a teenager and I remember challenging people on it and being told, I don't mean it in that sense. I'm not talking about gay people. I'm just using the slang word gay, which means something bad. So, you know, I'm not being homophobic. That's ridiculous. Mm. Um, and eventually our understanding evolved around the word gay being used as an insult and we understood that it was homophobic. You know, whether we intended it or not, it was homophobic to link an entire group of people to something being bad. Mm. Um, so I think if people understand that they're using a word that has been used to classify and and mistreat disabled people throughout history and then which morphed into an insult based on intelligence, you know, do you want to be linking your insult to this history of ableism? Um, so, you know, but it is really hard. I have challenged people on it and said it's an English blur and had people respond very negatively and that's partly around the fact that we don't like being challenged on language and being told that we're using an English blur. That can be very confronting. Um, but also, I think there are some people who are, you know, very careful not to be racist, very careful not to be homophobic, but really haven't got their head around the idea of not being ableist. They don't mm -hmm. necessarily consider disabled people to be an oppressed group, um, and they don't kind of think of ableist language as being a problem. So hopefully that's something that will change, but there are a lot of activists, Carly included, who are on the front line of these conversations and are copying a lot of flack, and it can be quite, um, quite difficult and painful but it's something that, that's really important to do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I know. It's it's such a shame that, you know, I guess we're still having these kinds of issues, but, you know, onwards and upwards, hopefully, <laughs> um, and, you know, these things get better. I mean, it wasn't, you're right, it wasn't that long ago that um, many, you know, homophobic words are being used as I would insults. say even still when I was at high school you yeah know, same things and even some of my friends yeah. now still say it and I'm like don't say that I know I call you people, know it's yeah the one, I that, call people out the on one it. that bugged me in high school was when people used to say that and then try and pass off and being like you know the definition means happy and I'm yeah. like it's not how you're using yeah. it that well really there's another word and and for those of you who are um, might struggle with a homophobic slur being used because this one is quite a difficult one and I myself find it quite confronting but I just want to talk about it to you today in classrooms. Mm -hmm. um, so again, if people want to tune out for a moment. Um, so one word that I hear a lot um, is faggot in the classroom and it is a really distressing word mm -hmm. to hear for a gay teacher. I hear it um, sometimes on a daily basis in school. Really, so it is really still absolutely frequently being used by some teenagers. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I will get the, you know, I will challenge the student on that and they will say, oh, it means a bunch of sticks, which means that they've been challenged on it before and they and have exactly looked it up and they've yeah. ready to go. It's so the they know it's the inappropriate, they know it's homophobic. Um, yeah. But they say, oh, I'm not being homophobic, it means a bunch of sticks. Um, so, and that word is constantly used by boys with each other where they're policing masculinity. So it's not just a case of homophobia, it's also used in the context of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with the girls, um, both boys and girls will tend to call girls bitch, which is, you know, obviously incredibly sexist and distressing. Yeah. Um, and these slurs, they're, they're quite common. We like to think of young people as being, you know, quite progressive on a lot of issues and on the whole they are. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, one of the things that I talk to authors about where they're, they're wanting to show that a character is homophobic or able perhaps and so they include a slur in their book um, and they may have another character challenge it. And it's just important for them to know that even using a slur in the context of a character being you know, ableist or homophobic, um, you're still putting that slur out there. It's still yeah. normalising it. So, you know, it can sometimes be okay to use those words in, in certain contexts and always, I say, please make sure that someone is challenging that or talking about how negative it is if you are going to use those, those words. Yeah, it's not um, just But also think twice about whether you do really need that word in there because if young people are reading this book and they come across a slur um, even if it's being used by a character who is meant to be, you know, the villain of the, the um, scene, it's still going to normalise that word and, and maybe even, you know, introduce it to someone who's never heard it before or hasn't heard it very often. So yeah, there is a responsibility exactly. for authors to be aware of ableist language, um, particularly words that are often used, um, you know, as put-downs where people authors don't necessarily know that it's ableist. And so, you know... Uh, a word like moron, which is used on social media all the time in regards to Trump, that's a really, really difficult word to come across all the time. And I see progressive, open-minded people who think of themselves as being, yeah, very across um, appropriate language in a whole range of ways, um, using that word, being challenged and continuing to use it, particularly mm. in regards to Trump. Because what they're doing is linking someone that they don't like, who has policies they don't like, who does potentially quite evil things, they're linking that idea to a word which is, has a history of being used for, for disabled people. So, mm. you know, when you link someone like Trump to people with mental health issues or disabilities, and we're seeing that a lot at the moment in the context of the, um, his recent tweets and the book that, is, that has just come out about Trump, um, there's been, you know, a lot of discussion around mental health and disability and Trump and people making armchair diagnoses about him, um, you know, and that is so harmful. It has real effects for the disabled community. So when we say don't use ableist language, um, you know, it's it's made so clear in situations like this where suddenly people are discussing it and insulting him with ableist terms all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I have to be completely honest that I wasn't, I was uh, I was aware a little bit of like um, some ableist language, but I wasn't aware as much um, of some of the terms um, until yes. I really started following you. And like I know you put up a great post the other day, or linked to something that was like what you can replace um, words with. And yes. I I just I hadn't realised that a lot of those words were linked to ableist language. And I think. Um, that, that's the thing like I am still learning like a lot of yeah. things yeah. like I, when we were talking are. with Carly um, I, I said um, I was listening to Emma Gannon's podcast and someone mentioned um, the cultural appropriation that's used with the term spirit animal and I yeah. had used that previously and after I listened to that I was like I just didn't know and I won't use yeah. it again and when I hear other people talking about it I'll tell them about it yeah. um, and that, I think yeah. that's the important thing too is that yes we are all learning and even as a disabled person you know I'm still learning about ableist language and you know not just trying to remove slurs but also thinking carefully whenever I do insult anyone on the basis of intelligence you know mm -hmm. is that really what I'm wanting to insult or am I wanting to um, talk about their policies or their behaviours or, um, you know, something that they've done that, that's hurt me or annoyed me or angered me. You know, how do I talk about people? Um, and and that's, that's going to take time for language to evolve so that we, you know, don't go straight for an insult based on intelligence when what we really mean is that someone is evil or rude or harmful or ridiculous or, yeah. So there are so many other words we can use and, you know, even for me trying to unlearn um, some of those words is yeah. you know, really difficult and that's okay it's okay to take time um, to learn that and, and to change it but I think the issue is where people think you know what this is too hard and that's that's something we hear you know oh you know you're being ridiculous you're being overly politically correct you know you're you're being the language police you're trying to make us you know there are too many words that you're trying to stop us from using um yeah. You know, that's that's the attitude that I struggle with. But where people yeah. say, I had no idea, it's like, well, all of us are on this journey around ableist language and it's okay to take time and it's okay to not know and then to find out and make a change. Mm. Yes, and definitely. I think one of the simplest things, which I think I'm pretty sure that it was your tweet or saw it on your timeline um, and it was about replacing words you might have used, the easiest one to replace is like replace it with ridiculous. 
I think. Yeah. I think that that was, and I've caught myself over that since I read that tweet, there have been a couple of times I've gone to say something and I've been like, no. And I've like consciously changed what I was going to say or write. And um, I think that was, a, that was an easy one for me to just in my head be like, just change it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, that was a, a really interesting, um, really interesting list of words as well. Yeah. And I think Great. that's one of the important things to remember is, you know, everyone is learning um, in this day and age at the moment. If we keep learning and keep helping others learn, hopefully we'll get to a much better place very soon. <laughs> the only problem is that I think it's like that echo chamber thing, which unfortunately allows horrible people to find other horrible people like far right groups and stuff but it also means that people like you and I and most of the people I'm sure who are listening to this we tend to follow other quite progressive people so I'm like yeah "Yeah, everything's getting really good and you know people are more aware of it and I forget that sometimes I'm following like ultra progressive people yeah we sort of get sucked into (laughs) our own little good world yeah but that's where things like teachers challenging um, ableist or homophobic words in the classroom matters. It's where, yeah. you know, when we're with a group of friends out in real life and someone uses a word like that, pulling them up on it and explaining, you know, what the ableist history of a word might be and suggesting alternatives. Even just correcting yourself around other people if you accidentally use one of those words is going mm-hmm. to have a big impact. So, um, you know, I think for some of us who kind of live on social media, certainly I've, you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and... Um, that's the place where, as you said, you know, you sometimes follow a lot of people who are like you in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that you didn't know about the ableist history of some words until you followed me or followed someone like Carly. And so I think, um, you know, even within progressive circles, there's still a lot of work to be done to change language use. And so, you know, one thing you can do on social media is make sure that you're following people who have experiences, a lived experience that is different to yours. Um, and that can help, you know, in terms of, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I know a lot more about um, about racism, about transphobia um, since getting on Twitter. So, and that's about connecting with people who have lived experience different from mine. Um, but yeah, outside of Twitter, in real life, we can still have a huge impact um, just by talking to other people, challenging them, pulling ourselves up, um, and eventually, I think it will get better. Yeah. Oh, well, let's talk about some really nice things now. Yes. (laughs) And that is great books. Yes. Recommend us some great books by diverse authors and about more, you know, I guess just more diverse more inclusive inclusive books. What can you recommend to us? This is my favourite part. (laughs) Um, So... uh, so definitely one of the books I mentioned before was My Dad Thinks I'm a Boy um, by Sophie LaBelle. Um, and, yeah, that's just a really lovely um, picture book, probably for, um, just trying to think what age range it would be for. Um, I've read it to my kids. Um, there's a beautiful page here that says, adults often think they can decide who children should be, but that's not how it works. No one except me gets to decide who I am, and sometimes it's hard because people won't see you as who you are even when you tell them. Um, and so I think, yeah, that picture book um, would be particularly good for kids who might be dealing with their identity um, and with other issues around their identity um, when they're young. So that's a really beautiful picture book that I think everyone should get. Um, in terms of uh, picture books that deal generally with the idea of being yourself, um, there's a great one called Perfectly Norman by Tom Percival. Um, and this one is a bit of a tearjerker. I cry every time I read it and it's about a little boy who has wings and he thinks he has to hide his wings. Um, So that one's very beautiful. Um, There's another one called The Journey by Francesca Fanna, which is about a refugee family, and um, that's one that I have read to my kids and I will use to kind of start conversations with them about um, Australia's immigration policies and about um, war and refugees more generally, which I think can be a difficult thing to talk to kids about um, because partly talking about the way that we fail people or, or don't look after them, um, I think kids are very optimistic and they're very caring and so, you know, trying to explain to them that there are people in the world who flee from war and then are not looked after by um, the people around them is um, is you know quite difficult and this book is a really beautiful way to start a conversation like that. Um, there's one I'll mention which is not about diversity but it's just so cool that I have to recommend it. It's called I Just Ate My Friend by Heidi McKinnon and it is 
hilarious. Uh, it's about a monster who accidentally eats his friend. Oh, no. And so then he has to go and find another friend. Oh. And it's just, he's so sad. <laughs> he's like, oh, no, I've eaten my friend. Um, I have read oh, it with my three-year-old. I had misgivings about reading it to him. I thought maybe, you know, the whole idea of someone eating their friend would be distressing. But as we say each time we read this book, we don't eat our friends. That's silly. So, you know. <laughs> um, oh, he really loves amazing. that book after it all the time. Um, there's another one called Family Forest by Kim Kane, which has um, a family where the parents have um, divorced and remarried. So you've got um, half-sisters and um, parents with new partners. Um, and that's just a really beautiful book. I think it's something we don't necessarily talk about a lot when we're talking about diverse representation yeah. in picture books. I would have needed um, that when I was little. I had, I'd never seen another family like mine before and yeah that would have been one that would have been very nice (laughs) so that is a beautiful book um there's another one called i think i mentioned it briefly called just the way we are by jessica shervington and Mm -hmm. illustrated by claire robertson um and again that just has lots of different kinds of families it has two dads in one of the uh, one of the families has two dads and that's something that i don't get to see a lot in picture books so i really love that one uh in terms of YA, um, one of the books that I'm loving at the moment that I'm reading is called um, Al Defo. Um, it's a graphic novel by C.C. Bell. And um, that is, yeah, just a really beautiful um, kind of middle grade graphic novel, actually. Um, and all of the main characters are rabbits. Um, and that's an own voice of book with um, deaf reps. So that's, yeah, one I really highly recommend. Um, there's a Again, middle grade um, book called Sister Heart by Zoe Morgan, um, which has an Indigenous main character and it's a verse novel. And I think it should be in every single school. Um, it should be taught as a text in every school. Um, it should definitely be available in every school library. Um, it's something, it's about the stolen generation and it's something that kids need to know more about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a really nice, accessible way. Um, I mean, it's a difficult story, but it's um, a beautifully written book and I think it's pitched perfectly at that middle grade age range, um, although a lot of YA readers also like this book, so I would highly recommend it to any reader. Uh, have I got time to recommend a few more? Yes, <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> Good. Okay, uh, so there's one called Women in Science that I've got on my pile to read next and I've had a little look um, and I'm really excited about reading it. It's written and illustrated by Rachel Ignatowski and it's got 50 uh, women in, who are um, historically done amazing things in science. Um, I've heard that's amazing. That, yeah, so um, high. A lot of people um, really love the picture book Ada Twist, Scientist, and um, Rosie Revere, Engineer. Um, and this is a really nice way for slightly older kids, um, although I think you could start this book quite young, um, a really nice way to say, yes, there are, you know, here's this picture book about a scientist or an engineer, um, but also there are actually women who have already achieved amazing things in science, and here are some of them. Mm. Um, and the illustrations are just beautiful, so I highly recommend that one as well. Um, there is a YA book that I am constantly recommending to people. It's probably my favourite YA book ever. Um, it's Ida by Alison Evans. And I really love sci-fi and fantasy. Um, this is about, I've got things like time travel and stuff in it and ultimate, alternate realities. And um, and the um, it's got um, trans rep and queer rep and it is just... Um, it's just beautiful. It is, yeah, an amazing way. And I highly recommend that to everyone. Um, I was just trying to think. There's another great one called um, When Michael Met Nina, um, which is about... <laughs> I just finished um, reading that last Randall night. <laughs> yeah, and that is... You've been reading that one, did you say? Yeah, I just finished reading it last night. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's and again, brilliant. It's, it's beautiful. And I think to read stories about refugees and about yeah. you know, the current climate in Australia because adults are really letting refugees down and they're setting a bad example for our kids in terms mm. of how to look after people who are in need. Um, and this book tackles that and I think that's really important. Um, so again, I'd love to see this in schools. Um, you mentioned that you'd interviewed Carly. I know Carly's got a book coming out at some stage soon, yes. which yes. I'm really excited about. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, April maybe? Yeah, I'm not sure Ooh, when it's coming out. What, but, yeah, she's got a book coming out this year. Yes, yeah. yeah. So um, Finding Never is another um, non-fiction book that I would highly recommend to teenagers and adults. Yes. Um, 
<laughs> and I'm also, this is not so much around the rhetoric, but I'm really loving Whisper by Lynette Nogi. That's the book that I'm halfway through. I'm reading um, El Defo and Whisper at the moment. Um, and I've got the one about women in science waiting for me. And also Redwall. I'm going to do a reread of Redwall because I loved it as a kid um, by Brian Jart about um, mice and, and like a medieval story around mice, I think. Yeah, I remember <laughs> I seeing those time, So, yeah. So yeah. That's, that's kind of... Oh god, there is. I've got like Summer Skin by Kirsty Eager. I'd love to reread that soon as well. It's a great. I keep like, telling Caitlin to read it. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's so good for like sex positivity too. Like I don't think I'd read yes. a book before where it wasn't just like oh awkwardly losing my virginity for the first time. It was like yes. actually enjoying sex, and that yeah. that was the that wasn't you know an adult book. It was brilliant. I keep telling you, we love Kirsty. She's from Rockhampton as well. So, um, yeah, we love her. <laughs> and for people who like shorter YA books, um, Marley Jane Ward's Welcome to Orphan Court is amazing. Um, and it's a novella. So it's mm. um, for a parent with young kids. It's really <laughs> handy having some books that are this kind of length. Um, yeah. I also love reading poetry. So I've been reading three anthologies of poetry by disabled writers and critically ill writers. So one is called Beauty is a Verb. Um, the other one is um, Shaping the Fracture Itself, which is by chronically ill writers. Um, and the last one is Stairs and Whispers, which is a UK anthology. Um, Beauty is a Verb in the US. So there are some great poetry anthologies with disabled writers, and that's a really good way if you haven't read a lot of books around disability to kind of get, um, you know, um, understand disability a bit better and read about a whole range of disabilities within the one book. So, mm. yeah. So <laughs> there's so many more. I love Lady <laughs> Helen by Alison Good. I could talk about YA all day. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, that's why we started this podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so, Jess, if people want to follow you and maybe ask you for even more recommendations, uh, where can they find <laughs> you online? Uh, okay. So on Twitter, I'm um, Jess Healy Walton. So it's Healy, H-E-A-L-Y, and Walton, W-A-L-T-O-N. Uh, on Facebook, um, Introducing Teddy has a page. It's www.facebook.com forward slash Introducing Teddy. Um, and I also have an author page, which is jessicawalton.com.au. Caitlin, where can people find us? <laughs> and, yes, everyone can find us at Better Words Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, our website is betterwordspodcast.com. Um, sign up for our newsletter, leave us a rating and review, and listen next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>